Tonight, this is our obviously our last uh, table talk for the summer, our last one here in Revelation for the time being. So if you have a Bible, open up with us to Revelation chapter 5. And th- this is, a, I mean, you could say this about any text anywhere in the Bible, but th- this really is a, an incredible passage. Jerry, Jerry just a, a word, because you, you've been talking about this text oh, growing yeah. on you more and more over the last few days. Yeah, it's just such a thrilling idea of uh, somebody being in heaven like this and not having any other concerns. Like, these guys don't seem apathetic when they're worshiping the Lord at all. You know, they're focused and single-minded and all these things that I want to be, that we want to be, here, they are there. And uh, to know that that's coming soon and uh, we're finally, we will never, ever, ever rob the Lord uh, Jesus of the glory that he truly deserves I just think that's that's really thrilling, and so um, I, today we get as good a picture maybe as there is about what we have to look forward to someday and uh, someday soon. Well, Jerry, can you pray for us, and then we'll read the text and yeah. start working through. Father, we come before you, and we are overwhelmed with just uh, what is going on in uh, heaven, um, even as we speak, I, I imagine and uh, what we see in this passage. And so, Lord, we uh, come before you and we ask um, that you would do as you always do through your word. You do surgery on our hearts. Thank you that it's a live and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, that we would be convicted where we need it, that we'd be encouraged. And, Lord, I ask that we would leave change, that we would not be bothered uh, by the same things that we've been bothered about this week. Um, but that we would have a more eternal mindset. We would think uh, with an eternal focus um, as we see what things are going to be like for all of eternity. And so, Father, thank you uh, for recording this for us that we can feast on. And, Lord, this is a passage that we would just um, realize that without your help, there's no way we can do this justice. So we ask that the Holy Spirit would uh, teach through your word today, um, that we may be more like our Savior in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, just as a reminder, if you were here last week, or if if you weren't here last week, chapter 4 of Revelation and chapter 5 go intimately together. You cannot understand really one chapter without the other. They go right hand in hand. Revelation chapter 4, Don Carson has said, is sort of like a setting, and chapter 5 is where the drama of that setting takes place. So if you remember chapter 4, you see these angelic creatures around the throne. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they end chapter 4 focusing on God as creator. Remember that last week. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Today's passage is going to focus on Jesus as the Savior. So you're looking at God as creator in chapter 4, and now the Savior in chapter 5. And Really an astonishing text. Greg, can you read the whole chapter for us, and then we'll dive in? All right, guys, let's read. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Well, let's look now back at the very first verse of the chapter. Aren't you going to give a picture? You usually have a picture of what we're going to study. isn't We don't get a picture on this There is one? no picture on okay. this one. I was hoping I, there was a picture. We'd be in trouble if we tried to yeah, draw no, a picture of some of this. The first verse says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, again, we're dealing with apocalyptic literature, which means we're dealing with symbolism. And uh, what we see here is this picture of the future, this scroll. It is sealed with seven seals, and it is written on the front and on the back. And um, here's what I think that's symbolizing. Almost always in the ancient world, uh, these scrolls that were made of papyrus, you know, they they can be quite long. They can be 30 feet long, 34, 35 feet long. For instance, the Gospel of Luke or Acts would have probably been written on one single long scroll in the 30-something foot uh, category. They were almost always written only on the front side of the scroll and they would be rolled up. The backside of the scroll didn't work as well because of how papyrus was shaped. You'd end up having to scrape against the papyrus in a weird way, and it just people didn't do that. It was rare to have a scroll written on both sides. But here you've got a scroll that is covered in ink on both sides. And it's, I think, showing that this is everything that, that God has planned for the future is here. All the details of God's future plans. And what you're going to see is, and we won't get to this right now, but Revelation 6 this, this, this uh, scroll starts to be opened. The seals start to be broken, and it starts to be opened. And what you see coming as a result of the opening of the scroll is God's purposes for the future of human history. Uh, I, I think it's all throughout God's church age leading to the culmination of Christ's second coming and the new creation. All that God has planned from Christ's first coming all the way into eternity is written on this scroll every bit of it. And this includes judgment on unbelievers, which is all over chapter 6 and following. It also includes the salvation of God's people and and, and His care for His own. And it includes the new creation and final judgment and all these things. And here it is sealed up with seven seals. Apparently, the emperor Vespasian, when he died, 
he had his own will, his last will and testament, and it was rolled up and sealed with seven seals, according to ancient history. And, you know, they would take the wet uh, wax as it sits on the seals, and they would take the signet ring of the king, the, the mark of the king, and they would put it on the wet wax, and it would harden into that shape. And you know that you don't open Vespasian's will unless you are authorized to do so and you do so at the right time and in exactly the right way or you are in major trouble, like your life is, is gone, right? If you, if, you, if you violate what Vespasian has said with his, with his sealed, sealed up scroll. Well, here you have God the Father with the scroll of all of human history and he's holding the future of human history in his hand. And he says this, who is worthy to come before me? Who is worthy to break open each of these seven seals and to unravel my purposes for the rest of all of history and all of eternity. Because if, now here's the thing where this is going to get interesting. If no one is available to do this, we're in big trouble. Because it means God's purposes, I know this sounds crazy, but God's purposes would not come to pass. The salvation of God's people could not happen if there was not someone worthy to take the position and to take that scroll and to open it. Thoughts on these opening verses? Schreiner talked about worthy. thought that was interesting. He said that's just a major word here, and so keep looking for it uh, kind of throughout the chapter. Greg? Well, what's another aspect to the opening of the scroll and the breaking of the seals is it doesn't just reveal what's in there. It's whoever does that, the, the opening is also the executing of what's in there. So whoever opens this is the one who executes whatever's in, in the scroll. And so we want someone who um, is going to be worthy because, you know, this is, like you said, this is the, the future history of the whole world, um, and we want the right person to do this. We don't want just any Yahoo to come up and, you know, and think, oh, yeah, let me, let me, let me take a shot at this. Um, no, there's, there can only be one who can do this, and so that's, that's what's so significant about this. I mean, this is the divine plan for history. So we want the right person opening this. And don't you think verse 1 gives us an idea? And that's what I had never really understood this until, uh, you know, now I'm studying it a little bit. No wonder John is so disturbed, you know, that somewhat, no wonder he weeps like he does here. Because if this doesn't happen, and think about our own life, how disturbing it would be if we didn't know what the Lord Jesus had done. We would be a wreck. And the unbeliever is. And so this is, it becomes more thrilling the more we get, we get into this. But uh, chapter one, or verse 1 sure sets us up. So, so look at verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So I, we have the privilege right now of talking through microphones, right? Which is very nice for amplification. It's a benefit. Back in these days, there were no microphones. So God picks this great angel with a mighty voice to proclaim throughout all the world, who is worthy to come here and do what God is asking to be done? Who is worthy to take the future of human history and unfold it and unravel it and bring it to pass according to God's plan? Who is worthy to do that? And as he proclaims it, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you have your tryouts for a game or something, right? Let's see who can be on, the, on, the, on this team. And so you have people come out and try out and you find out, okay, this person's not good enough and this person's not, oh, well, this person looks like they might be good enough and then they fail. Well, we find out here, absolutely no one, no angel, uh, no one living, no one dead, no great saint, no terrible sinner 
Nobody's worthy. I mean, you could take all the list of famous people in human history, right? All the people are in the history books. They could stand there and take their turn to try to take the scroll out of the Father's hand, and none of them would be able to do it. This is not something that anyone is capable of doing. Who can deliver God's saints from death? No one. You could pick all the great religious leaders of all the false religions of the world, and they could come forward and try to take that scroll. Nothing's going to happen. Muhammad cannot pull this off. Gandhi cannot pull this off. Nobody's going to be able to do this. So at this point, John is left in this moment where it looks as though no one is, is worthy. Absolutely no one. And John is left to sit for a moment in the thought that perhaps God's purposes for his people and judgment and salvation are not going to come to fruition because there is no one worthy to do what God is asking and to bring them to fruition. Now, just stop for a second. We all know this is hypothetical. It's not going to happen. We know what's going to happen at the end of the story. But at this moment, John is left just to feel it for a second. I want, let's try to feel this for a second. Imagine no one has conquered death. There is no hope for the future. You're sitting there. There's no one who can answer the ultimate questions. You're just left in, in hopelessness. And John begins to weep. We're told he begins to weep loudly. I mean, this is someone who is facing absolute and utter hopelessness. There is no future. God's plans will fail. Romans 8.28 is not going to come true, right? There, there is no hope beyond the grave. Death wins. God's plans fail. That's what you're looking at. And John is left to sit there in that moment. Th thoughts about the hopelessness or despair of what John faces for a moment here? Well, I mean, it, the, the weep loudly, I mean, it's literally to wail, uh, I mean, like a, a loud, like guttural, like crying, like ugly crying kind of thing. Um, I mean, we, we resonate with, with ugly crying. I mean, it's just like you get a sobbing mess. Like, but here, here's the, the contrast, and this is, this is very interesting, uh, and I think it's instructive. Think about everything we just saw in chapter 4, the sounds that would be there. I mean, around the throne, peals of thunder, flashes of lightning. You've got the rainbow kind of haloing around the throne. You've got all this praise and worship of God going on. And then you hear somebody weeping loudly. Like it is so out of place what John's response is here. Like we, we should like, and, and, I mean, the only sound in the presence of God is praise and adoration and worship. And now we have someone weeping. And what's interesting is John's the only one doing this. None of the other like creatures, the elders, the living creatures, whoever else is there, they're not weeping. I mean, that's why it's in verse 5, it's, and he's, he writes, one of the elders said to me. So it's like they, they, they are tuned in more than John is to, uh, to, to God's plan and to what's about to happen. But let that land on you. John is the only one crying here. He's the only one wailing over this. And I mean, we, we have to acknowledge our humanness. We, I mean, he just saw chapter four. God seated on his throne. This is absolute sovereignty to do what he pleases, when he pleases, as he pleases, with none to stop him. There's no one like God. He's holy. He, he has the power to create. He holds things in existence. Who can stop him? And it's like John for a moment forgets who God is. That if God's going to present a problem like this scroll that has to be opened in order for his plans to be enacted and executed on the earth, like John forgets for a minute that this is God we're talking about. He's able to provide wherever there's a need like this. And so, but that's us sometimes. Like we, we and guys, this, this is just, let's just be honest. We have this whole book. 
We have this whole book, and many of us have read it many times. We know it well, and yet we still have John's response to situations. How's God going to fix this? What's God going to do? I don't see how God's going to bring good out of this. I don't see how this is ever going to you know, bring good in my life. God can and God will. I mean, that, let's just rest in that. Even when for a moment we, we miss the glaringly obvious about who God is and what he can do, let's, let's remind ourselves as much as we can. This is a God who always does what is impossible in our eyes. He always does. John, like you said, this is impossible. Who, who can do this? Who, who can fix this? Well, guess what? God will. He's going to provide. And I, that's verse 5, unless we have more on verse 4. Yeah, I like uh, what Schreiner said, and I would have missed it. He said, it's interesting that we just didn't go from verse 2 to verse 6. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy, open the scroll and break its seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. But he gives these three verses, three, four, and five, to just way ramp up the drama where there is so much. I think, Mark, I would love to hear your thoughts here. What do we learn from these three verses? Because there is a lot of, I don't know, tension here. There's, you get this, you're in awe in a different way because of this. What, yeah. Why are those three verses in there inspired? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, well, I think one, one way to try to think about these verses would be to ask a question. It, it, obviously, today in our world, secularism, atheism, those are the air that we breathe in our culture. They're, you know, if you look at charts of atheism on the rise, it's, it's massive in younger generations, like uh, as you work down Gen Z and su such as that, uh, religion is going down in terms of people claiming a religion. Atheism, secularism is going up. A question I want to ask to those who are in that camp of saying, yeah, I'm a secularist, I'm a humanist, I'm an, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in any kind of religion, don't believe in the Bible, I, I, always, want to, I always want to kind of pin them into the corner and start asking the big questions of life, because I don't think that there are answers in that system for the big questions. The big questions would be, what is your objective standard for right and wrong? Because surely you believe there are things in the world that are wrong. By what standard? What do you have to measure that with other than your opinion? Okay, and, and how is your opinion better than someone else's opinion who disagrees? So it, it, we've got this kind of endless subjectivism, which is a dead-end street. Number two, you've got no objective reason to be here on Earth. You're a cosmic accident headed towards extinction. In the death of the universe, no one's going to remember or care that you were here, according to atheism. So why does how you live now matter? Why does charity matter? Why not exploit the poor rather than help the poor? Who cares what you do if there's no judge, there's no purpose, there's no objective morality, there's no heaven or hell, there's no final... Like, who cares how you live your life? So I want to ask... And then number three I want to say is, what is your hope beyond the grave? You've got nothing, okay? So you have a reason to weep tears that are bitter because you've got nothing to live for. You know, Bertrand Russell, who was a famous atheist of the last century, he lived to be in his 90s. He wrote the book, Why I'm Not a Christian. And uh, in that book, and, and well, in some of his interviews, he said the same thing. What, what do I have to look forward to? They asked Bertrand Russell, and he said, nothing but unyielding despair. And I thought, at least he's trying to be honest with his own worldview. I've got nothing to look forward to in atheism. Unyielding despair is the future. Uh, darkness is out there. That's all I've got to look forward to. Well, guess what? You have a reason to weep loudly, right? You, you have a reason to lament because you've got nothing in the future of which to look forward to or to bank on. All that is going to change right now for John because there is a future. 
There is a Savior. There is a plan of God that will be unfurled and unfolded uh, by this Lamb who is coming. And so everything changes if you have the crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected Lamb of God. Th that's going to change everything about how we see our future. So, Greg, could you start walking us through verses 5 and following? Yeah. Um, all right, verse 5. He says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And I'll go through verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Now, just a, a textual note here. John is told, he hears, this is what you need to look for. He's told the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, okay? And so when John turns to look, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. And it's literally standing as slain. Not as if slain, but standing as slain. Obviously referencing his death and now his victorious resurrection from the dead. And that's, that's a pattern. Like he's going to hear something. This is repeated a few times. He's going to hear something. And then when he looks, what he sees doesn't necessarily correspond in terms of the picture to what he heard. But it's the same reality. Okay? It's the same reality. So he's being told, don't weep anymore. No more wailing, John. Stop crying. Why? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Now, lion of the tribe of Judah comes from Genesis 49. Uh, uh, Jacob's prophecy toward, over his sons as he's dying. He has words that he says for each one of his 12. And in reference to Judah, he talks to him about being like a lion's cub, a lion crouching. Um, and so this, this, this lion, which is a regal, powerful animal, is what we associate with Judah. There's some Jewish tradition said like the, the banner for the house of Judah was a lion on their flags. I don't know if that's true, but it would fit. Um, and so you've got this, this promise that Judah is, um, he, he's, he's this lion and lions are the king. They're the, they're the top of the food chain. It's, it's, a, it's a messianic promise um, to Judah, even though Joseph is the one who brought salvation, it's Judah who gets the promise. And then he says the root of David, which comes, I think, from Isaiah 11, if I'm remembering right, talking about the coming Messiah. And so both of those images, this lion who's going to conquer and this, this root of David, the one from whom King David's line comes ultimately, are brought together um, in this one individual who we know to be Jesus of Nazareth. And here's the thing. It says, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, here's some things to notice. He conquered. We've also looked at that word conquered in chapters 2 and 3, right? And conquering in those chapters refers to what? Violently killing your enemies, right? No, like being faithful to God unto death. That's conquering, is when you don't give up on Jesus, even when it gets hard, okay? Even when you are pressured with your job, your family, your income, your, your, all your, your earthly possessions, even your life, you don't deny his name. You hold fast unto death. That's conquering in Revelation, okay? And so remember that, because this lion, and we think the lion just tearing his prey apart, how did he conquer? Well, that's what we're about to see, but he conquered 
so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So however he conquered, that is the very means by which he is enabled to open this scroll and therefore execute the contents that are in it. Can I jump in yeah, right here? Ahead. I'm going to read a little quote from Joel Beakey on, on his sermon on this text. Listen to this. So John hears about the lion, and he looks, and he sees the lamb, right? That's, that's the irony here. So this is what Beakey writes. John looks more closely, and to his utter surprise, he sees a lamb bearing all the marks of having been slain. What would you have expected him to see? Perhaps you might have expected a knight clad in shining armor, robed in purple, riding on a, a, a steed, followed by the captives he has taken, and wagon loads of spoil from moors he has fought and won. But that is not the nature of this king. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as, it, as if it had been slain. Lo, John says, this is a shock to him. It is something marvelous and totally unexpected. John sees the lamb. You can't help thinking of a lot of texts in the Old Testament, but one in particular is when Abraham is asked to offer Isaac up on the altar at the last second, Abraham, Abraham, do not touch the boy, for now I know that you fear me, since you do not withhold your son, your only son from me. And then what does Abraham say? I'm going to name the place God will provide, because the Lord will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, right? Abraham says that 2,000 years before Jesus. And then God, true to his word, God provides the lamb for the sacrifice, and this time it's not Abraham's one and only son, it's God's one and only son that God provides. And God doesn't stop the knife, right? He doesn't stop the nails. He doesn't stop the lashing or the crown of thorns. God doesn't say, stop, stop, it's my son. Instead, he brings down the full weight of condemnation and wrath in, that we deserve on his son, did not spare his own son one lash, one bit of pain, one bit of agony. Why? So that he could rescue and deliver us. And so the conquering lion-like king is a lamb-like slaughtered figure who has taken our place and, and conquered by his own death. Well, and thinking of him conquering, like how did the lion conquer? Again, we, we have to let the text lead us in this, and this is why you don't want to try to draw a picture of this, because it'll really confuse you. If you tried to draw a lion who's a lamb with seven horns, and seven, like it, it would just be really freaky, and that's not the, the intent of this. The, the lion conquered how? Through death and resurrection. That's how he conquered. That's why he's worthy. Who else has overcome death? Who else has been dead and then come back to life? Only Jesus. And I mean, amen, hallelujah. He did it just as he said he would. And so John sees this lamb. And so we have to identify those two pictures which seem opposite, you know, a conquering lion and a lamb that looks like it's just been slaughtered. Again, Revelation will look at the same reality from different angles, different camera lenses, if you will, to, to enrich our understanding of that one thing, that one event, that one individual. And that's exactly what it's doing here. Um, I want to read a couple of things from, from uh, Jonathan Edwards on this. He has an excellent sermon called The Excellency of Christ, uh, where he meditates on verses 5 and 6 of Revelation 5. Um, and he draws out seven observations um, about the contrast here when you think Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. I'm just going to mention these quickly. Um, we're not, we unfortunately don't have time to linger. It's a, he has a whole sermon just on those two, um, and I'm just going to mention them. But it is interesting that this, this, these diverse qualities all come together in Jesus. He's both the agent of God's judgment. I mean, we know this from the New Testament, judgment and salvation. I mean, all the, these seemingly competing things come together in him in perfect harmony. 
So here's seven things from Edwards as summarized by David Mathis. You see in Jesus, lion and lamb, infinite glory paired with the lowest humility. I mean, you think a conquering lion, you don't get more glorious than that and then a, a meek slaughtered lamb. Infinite glory, lowest humility. Secondly, infinite majesty. No one is more majestic than Jesus in his glory and yet this is paired with transcendent meekness. There's nothing more meek than a, a helpless lamb being led to the slaughter. Number three, deepest reverence toward God, and yet he has equality with God. I mean, he is God, and yet he worships God. You will not find any human being more reverent and worshipful toward God than Jesus. Number four, infinite worthiness of good, meaning he should only receive good, and the contrast, the greatest patience under the sufferings of evil. He only deserved what is good, and yet when he received the exact opposite, he was nothing but patient. Number five, an exceeding spirit of obedience along with a supreme dominion over heaven and earth. Jesus, as the lamb, obeyed his father at every point, and yet he is the one who will reign over everything. Number six, you see absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation to the will of God. He's the one who can command everything, and yet he resigns himself to do exactly what the Father said. Number seven, self-sufficiency, meaning you don't rely on anyone. He's God. He's the Son of God, and yet you see an entire trust and reliance on God. So all of that is bound up in this lion lamb. He is both at the same time. And it is, it, it's, it's like a, a rainbow after, after a giant storm. And it's just, it's one of those bright, we, we, you don't try to overly examine it. You just stand in awe and you enjoy it. We see this lion lamb and we should do what the elders and the, everyone else is going to do is fall down and worship because that's what he's worthy of. That's exactly right, and it's so wonderfully well said. Um, Edwards also pointed this out. I've said this maybe a year ago or so, but I'll, I'll mention it again. Edwards, it may be from the same sermon. Edwards said this. He said, surely one of the greatest miracles Jesus ever did is one that does not get talked about often. He said, it is in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus, who deserves nothing but worship, is about to be arrested and betrayed, right? Betrayed and arrested, right? That's Jesus deserves infinite glory, has chosen to put himself in a place where he's going to be betrayed by one of his close friends and arrested. And in the moment of his arrest, Peter pulls out the sword and starts swinging it wildly around and knocks off the ear of Malchus' servant. And what happens? Luke tells us Jesus reaches down in the dirt, picks up the ear that had been lopped off, goes up and reattaches it to the servant's ear. And Edward says, you will never see meekness on greater display than in that moment. So, so, so let's just make a practical application. When you are doing your quiet time, when you're reading the Bible, and you're looking for, quote, like the glory of Jesus or the glory of God, what am I looking for? I'm reading the text of Scripture. I want to see with the eyes of my heart and be stirred by the glory of Jesus. What does that even mean? It sounds very spiritual, but what does it mean? And the answer is you're looking for this very thing that Edwards is describing. You're looking for moments where with the one who deserves all praise gives up all praise and instead serves someone else when there's no reason humanly for him to be doing that except just absolute graciousness and meekness. So it's, it's when the opposite of what he deserves or the opposite of what you would expect is what Jesus is doing. And it, it's like he deserves worship. At that moment, if Jesus would have said, I'm calling down the, the 12 legions of angels 
right now, and I'm going to slaughter every single Roman soldier. Nothing wrong with that. He has every right to do that. But instead, he heals the ear of his enemy who's arresting him. Some nobody who he created is arresting the king of kings. And what does Jesus do? He heals his ear so that they can then proceed to arrest him. That is the glory of Jesus in his meekness on full display because it's the opposite of what you and I would do if we were in that situation, is it not? If you're getting unjustly arrested, do you think you're going to be aiding the police officer in that moment or the, 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 the person who's arrested? you be aiding them? No, in that moment. Everything in you is going to call out for this is wrong. But instead, he entrusts himself to the Father's will and he acts meekly and he does a miracle to heal the man who is arresting him. Those are the kinds of things we're looking for with Jesus that show a bright beam of the glory of his character. You see both his lion-like and lamb-like qualities uh, converge together in, in all these different kinds of ways. Can I make one quick comment yeah. on that? You mentioned like when we read, um, you know, we're very familiar with John 1 when it says, we beheld his glory, glories of the only son from the father. Um, and, you know, and, and John elsewhere talks about, you know, it was, you know, they, somebody foresaw and spoke about the glory of Christ. And we think like Isaiah's glory, you know, right. oh, what Isaiah saw on the temple, that's beholding the glory of God. No, I mean, reread the gospels in light of what Mark was just saying and say, and, and look for the glory of God in Christ on display in all of the meek things and all of the acts of service and all, like, it's not just the displays of power. Right. It's, it's everything he does, including washing the disciples' feet, healing an enemy's ear. I mean, reread the gospels with a new sense of what glory is because God's glory was displayed um, in all of the acts of Jesus, not just the, the big powerful ones, not just at the Mount of Transfiguration, but in every single thing he said and in every single thing he did. Yeah, just one more example, just because these are, these are so interesting to think about. When Jesus was born, there was a lion-like moment when all the angels come down and herald his birth. That's a lion-like moment, right? And they, but who does, who does it go to? Does it go to the elites? It goes to the nobodies, right? The shepherds out in the field. So you see a lamb-like aspect there, right? And then Jesus is born. Uh, he, he's brought here to Bethlehem, the home of David. So there's a kingly quality. There's a lion-like quality. And then there's no room in the, in the guest room. So what do they do? They take Jesus. They put him in the manger. Do you see that? This is God's son. He had a worse birthplace than you did. This is Jesus saying, I'm here for everybody. I'm here for the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor, the meekest of the meek. He could have been born in a palace. He should have been born in the greatest palace in the world. But instead, there's no room. Put him in the feeding trough for animals. Do you see the glory of the lamb-like quality of the Lion of Judah in that moment? We're looking for the combination of these attributes that go together. And when you see them together, there's no one like this Jesus. There's no one who has this kind of combination of, of character traits. All right, back to, to Revelation 5 here. We'll keep moving. Uh, verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I just pause. Remember, the elders represent God's people because there's 24 of them, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, 24 represents God's people. Among the elders, I saw a lamb. Where is Jesus? He's amongst the people who represent us, the elders. I saw among the elders a lamb standing as though he had been slain with seven horns. That represents his power, his total power. And seven eyes represents all his knowledge which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth, God sending out his spirit. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So the lamb has taken the, the scroll, verse eight. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. 
For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You will see here, the lamb is treated exactly the same as God the Father. They fall down to worship the Father, chapter 4, and they fall down to worship the Lamb in chapter 5. Remember, when John tries to worship angels, the angel says what? Get up on your feet. I'm not, I am a created being. I'm an angel. I'm not God. Don't worship me. But when they bow down before the Lamb, the Lamb does not say stand back up. Why does the Lamb receive worship? Because he is equal with God the Father, full divinity of the Lamb. Uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, all truly and eternally and equally divine, and they receive worship, all of them do, one God, three eternal persons, and they receive worship from, uh, the, from the people here. Uh, thoughts on these verses, Greg? Uh, well, verse 7, like, I, I don't want to rush past yeah. the first part of that, because that is, this is an amazing thing. Who, who is going to be bold enough to go up to the <laughs> throne of God and, and take whatever God is holding? I mean, who's really going to have the guts enough to do that? I mean, y'all remember the, I don't know if y'all did this. I remember when I was real little, you'd have, you know, guest speaker, sometimes a teacher, and they'd have this game, and they would kind of test to see who was, who was, you know, they'd hold like a $10 bill in their hand and be like, you know, if you want it, you can come get it. And everybody's like, can we really go up and do it? Um, you know, can I, can I? And then finally you get one person who's bold enough. They go up, they take the $10, and teacher's like, you can keep it. And everybody's like, man, I wish I'd have done that. I didn't know if I could. I wasn't bold enough. But I mean, if, if anybody thinks, well, I'm just going to be bold and I'm going to go for it, you're going to die if you do this with God in this scroll. And yet think about this. All these glorious creatures worshiping, praising God. If we saw these creatures, we'd fall down in front of them as John does on occasion because they're glorious in and of themselves but no one goes up to God. No one goes up to God and, and demands anything, takes anything, and yet this lamb does exactly that. He went and took that scroll out of the hand of God. I mean, that, that should stun us. That's how worthy he is. God doesn't rebuke him. God doesn't say, hey, soldier, slow down a little bit. God lets him do it because he's worthy, because he's that worthy. Um, as we see, he took the scroll and when, and again, it's, it's when he does that. These, all the, the heavenly creatures, they know this is right. They know this is good. And they're, they're celebrating it because it's verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, that's when they do what? They fall down. And they, they start worshiping and they sing this amazing song um, to him about his worthiness. But that's just, that, that has struck me every time I've, I've, I've read that. Somebody was gutsy enough to go up to the throne of God. Now, here's a quick application because I know we got to move on. What does Hebrews tell us about having a great high priest who's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses? It says, therefore, let us approach, boldly approach the throne of grace. Like Jesus went to the throne and because he can do that, we can do that. We don't take the scroll, obviously. We just preach about what he's revealed. But we have the same access to the Father that Jesus does. Let that land on you when you pray. Like, it's not just ho-hum, let me say this before I, before I eat a meal, before I go to bed, because I'm supposed to. You can go to him, the one seated on the throne that all of heaven worships. You can do what the angels can't do if you're a believer. What a privilege. What a privilege.
Good. A word here, I don't want to get sidetracked, but a word here about the, the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That's in the end of verse 8. So you've got two things, that the, you've got two reactions of believers. You've got their prayers and you've got their praise, right? They're praising the Lamb. And they also have their prayers, which are pictured as golden bowls full of incense. And just flip real quick. I don't want to go long on this. Chapter 8, very beginning of chapter 8, the, the, the seals are being opened and you get to the last seal and the Lamb is opening these seals. Chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Same picture, right? The, the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 4, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, without getting caught up in all the details of that, I think what's being said is this. The saints are praying. We know one thing they pray in chapter 6 is for God's justice to come in the world, for God to bring justice. That's at least one of the prayers. And what, what it's being pictured is this. The saints are praying, and their prayers are being stored up in these giant golden bowls, pictured as incense before the Lord, a pleasing aroma. So just real quick, our prayers before God may feel very small. We may say, I believe, help my unbelief when we pray, a mixture of you know, true faith and unbelief. But here's what we know. They smell sweet to God. They are incense in his, in, his, in his nose. And here's what we find out. These prayers that we're praying for God to do things in this world and these acts of justice, they're never going to come true unless the lamb comes and takes the scroll and opens them. But when the, when the seventh seal is open, what happens? All those prayers for justice and for God's actions in the world get flipped over and poured out on the earth. And God brings justice in direct response to the prayers of his people. So here's what we know. Because Jesus was slain and rose again, all your prayers are being seen and they are a pleasing aroma in God's, in, God's, uh, in God's presence and they are stored before God in heaven and the day is coming when God will give answer to our prayers. Doesn't mean we're always gonna get what we ask for. That's not what we're saying. But all of our prayers done in the name of Jesus are pleasing to the God. And I just wanna read a quick illustration from Spurgeon. You can't go wrong with Spurgeon. Listen to this. Spurgeon says this. This, this. this moved me earlier today. Think about Christ's work as a sanctifier of his own people's prayers. And he compares it to the work of a mother. Now listen to this. Imagine a mother. Her little child returns from the woods with a bouquet of flowers that the child, that he plans to give to his father. The mother sees that all kinds of weeds are mixed with the flowers. Can you picture the, the, the bouquet here from the little child? So the mother quickly takes out the weeds and adds more flowers. Then the mother and child present the bouquet to the father. Likewise, Christ takes the weeds out of our prayers. He sanctifies our prayers by cleansing them with his blood and adding his own superior petitions. Then he presents this offering to the father. And Spurgeon writes, if we could see one of our prayers after Christ Jesus has amended it, we would scarce know it again. Uh, he has such skill that even our good flowers grow fairer in his hand. We clumsily tie them into a bundle, but he arranges them into a beautiful bouquet. And that's the picture, right? Our prayers are so imperfect, but Jesus, the great intercessor, works through our prayer and makes it more presentable to the Father in his name. And his blood covers the flaws of our prayers, and he presents a much better prayer to the Father than we prayed here on earth. It's kind of like Romans 8. Our, our, our groaning's too deep for words, and yet the Spirit, uh, the, God knows the mind of the Spirit as intercession is made there. So don't be discouraged as we come before God's throne of grace. We know that he hears and that he will respond uh, to our prayers. I love that little phrase, you ran some people for God. 
And that reminds me of 1 Corinthians 6. We're not our own. We were bought at a price. And it was the price of, of the blood of the Lord Jesus. And so we're not our own. We're bought at a price, so we're to honor God with our body. I think there's a flood of application when we think about this and just what Christ has done. And our response to that um, needs to be similar to the response that we see um, from the, the elders and the four living, the beasts in heaven. Um, I wanna, you don't have to turn there. I want to read from Daniel 7 a couple of verses here because it, this, there's portions of Ezekiel um, as well, but Daniel 7 is very much in the backdrop um, of, of what we're seeing here, and especially uh, in, in the, the words here that they're singing um, about Jesus. Again, you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Listen to this from Daniel 7. This is verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Skip to verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to who? The people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom, the Most High's kingdom, through his saints, will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Um, Daniel 7, this vision that he had of this son of man, who we know to be Jesus, Jesus' favorite self-designation in the Gospels was son of man. I believe going back to Daniel 7, we see him here. We see a lot more being funneled into this, but Daniel 7 is definitely in the background when he says, from every tribe and language and people and nation, four corners of the earth, if you will, but you've made them what? Verse 10, a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Through Jesus's death and resurrection, those who become his people are the fulfillment of what God promised through Daniel about the saints and the people of the most high having a kingdom that will never pass away. Like that's the connection. And so in the church, we see that kingdom inaugurated, as we've said. It's already here. It's not yet in its fullness as it will be when Christ comes back in power and glory. But that's why we can talk about, you know, being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have forgiveness, the redemption uh, of our sins or the forgiveness of our sins is why? Because we belong to his kingdom. The kingdom of the son of man is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it has begun through his death and resurrection. He ascended up into heaven. He is standing at the right hand of God with full power and authority. And he is the king. He is the king. Kings are worshiped. Kings are the ones you bow down to. And who are this king's people? It's the saints. It's those who believe in Jesus. Good. So verse 11 of Revelation 5. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. There's a quick word here. We know there are many angels here, many thousands of angels singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. It's an amazing thought. Let me, I'm going to read Biki again. Just, just listen to this. This is really interesting. Those closest to the throne are not angels. They are you and me represented by the 24 elders. 
which symbolized the entire church of the Old and New Testament. So all God's true people. Now, listen to this. These are the ones who are seated around the throne of God and of the Lamb, and they have more to say, he says, than anyone else. For, this, this line got me. Listen to this. The song of the redeemed is fuller and deeper and more profound. The song of us, the redeemed, is fuller and deeper and more profound than the songs of the angels and the song of creation from chapter 4. For we who are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ can praise him in a way that angels cannot. We can claim a more intimate interest in the Son of God than angels can. I'm going to reread this last part. For we who are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ can praise him in a way that angels cannot. We can claim a more intimate interest in the Son of God than angels can. 1 Peter 1 says, angels long to look into the things related to the gospel. They long to look into it, but they're a little bit outsiders on the whole redemption thing because they have not experienced what we have experienced in being redeemed from our sins, being born again in Christ and being forgiven and clothed in Christ's righteousness. Angels do not have experience of that. So they sing worthy is the lamb who was slain, but they sing it a little bit outside. They're not inside this as we are. So we have a privilege that goes beyond the privilege of the very angels before God's throne. And that privilege is to say, you weren't just slain for sinners, you were slain for me. And that's something that even the angels uh, do not fully experience. Uh, thoughts on these last couple songs? Well, let, me say, let me say one more thing. Okay, one more thing. This was pointed out from Kevin Young. I found this fascinating. You may not find it as interesting. I don't know. But if you look at chapters 4 and 5 in your translation, you probably have the songs indented where you can see them very clearly. You see the, there's five songs between chapters 4 and 5. Two in chapter 4, three in chapter 5. You see the little indented songs, right? So... Very interesting to me. Kevin DeYoung pointed this out. The first song, verses, verse 8, the only people singing are the four living creatures. Okay? First song. Only the four living creatures are singing. Second song, which is verses 10 and following, the 24 elders are the ones singing. The third song, which is chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, the four living creatures and the 24 elders join together in singing. Are you following this? The first song is just the four living creatures. Then it's just the 24 elders. Now it's the four and the 24 together for the third song. Now look at the fourth song. This is verses 11 and 12. Now you've got the living creatures and the elders and countless hundreds of thousands of angels. So the group is getting bigger and bigger. And now the biggest of all is the last song, verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. You see, it's as though the song begins with the four, and it's 24, and it's the four and the 24, and then it builds even more, and eventually you have every creature in heaven and on earth and in the sea and under the earth, every creature in all the universe is now crying out praise to God. It's like it's building and building and building and building. The praise is getting louder and wider, and suddenly at the end, all of God's creation is crying out His praises as you get to this last song. What's this is one of those little detail things that just fascinates me. Um, when it says in verse 11, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, a myriad is literally like 10,000 or thousands upon thousands. So, I mean, he's like, he is like so wanting us to get the point of how many creatures in heaven are worshiping God. So, I mean, you could basically say 10,000s of 10,000s of 10,000s of 10,000s and thousands and thousands. I mean, you're, you're, it's, it's like... From, from the Greek language, I mean, how, how do you say millions and millions and millions? I mean, literally, that's what we'd say today. 
Um, and, and, and if we ever are tempted to think, you know, are there more demons than angels? Is God, you know, God ever threatened by the demons? You start hearing numbers like this. And one of, one of the points of, of the numbers is, is to, to show us how many are for God in comparison to how many are not. And when you think about the power of one angel who can kill 185,000 Assyrian troops in one night, and you've got millions upon millions of them, God's kingdom is ultimately secure. Nothing can assault it successfully. Nothing can overcome it. It cannot be challenged. Um, it is absolutely set. And again, that, that's hope for us. I mean, obviously God doesn't need that, but what, what's the point? The point is God is surrounded by so many creatures that are an absolute adoration of him. They won't stand for anything less than worship, um, and they are powerful. And so God's throne, God's rule, God's kingdom is secure. Uh, if we're ever tempted to think that because our earthly kingdoms aren't secure, um, especially today, we, we realize the fragility of national security and, you know, of basic everyday life, how, how, you know, really it doesn't stand on much. You take a few things away and all of our comforts are gone. Not so with God's kingdom. Not so with his kingdom. There's nothing, nothing that can shake him. That's what Hebrews said. We'll be thankful to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I mean, amen, hallelujah. That's good news. And we're coming to an end here for the, for the message. But uh, another, one other thing is this. You, you may wonder why we sing about the cross so much at our church. If you look at Ian's set list, you'll notice there's a whole lot of singing about the cross itself. Why is that? Well, th this chapter gives us a real model for how worship should be done. It's how heaven's doing worship right now, okay? And one author said, heaven is quite cross-centered and quite glaring about it, right? There, there's no apology here. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. I mean, over and over and over, what's heaven singing about? They're singing about the crucified and risen lamb of God. That's what heaven is full of the praises of, is the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And so we want to reflect heaven's praises here on earth. And so guess what? Every Sunday, we're singing about the cross. It's going to be one of the central features of our songs. And after we pray, Ian's going to lead us in a song that's based on this chapter that you know uh, about the lamb being worthy to come and take the scroll and open its seal. Some, some closing thoughts, Jerry. Well, I just would love to, for us to all apply this. Well, what a great thought. You know, just to say our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far away from all. We see it. We see it right here. This is what's coming. So let's not fix our eyes on what we see, but on what's unseen, what seems temporary, what's unseen is eternal. And I think that the, uh, those of you at Bro Bible last night got in on this in chapter 12, 1 and 2 in Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. We see what's happening in heaven. Let's let that be us and not be so consumed by what's going on down here. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Would you close us here? Father, we long to uh, be with you. We see that um, this song in heaven, the last one, is sung by everyone. Lord, we want to be um, that in your creation that brings you great glory, that worships you in the way we 
go about this life, we pray that we would be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. And Lord, I pray that um, although this passage is full of just uh, amazing theology and so many things that are interesting, Lord, we pray that it would, you would apply it to our hearts, that we may be changed this week, that we would consider uh, what's going on in heaven, and we would desire to uh, not only to be there with an eager anticipation, um, as at least seven times in the New Testament we would long for heaven. I pray that um, this would give us a greater longing than we've ever had before, but that while we're here, Lord, I ask, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Let's pray that you would flood our mind with uh, Scripture, with your truth. Um, We would be west waylaid uh, by the lies all around us and uh, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we thank you that um, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're so grateful in Jesus' name.